1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. It has turned chilly here in Sultry, savannah, less sultry, I suppose. Now, a cold front has blown in. The past week or so has been, you know, mid to upper 70s. I record this just a couple weeks. Well, I I record this a week ahead of Christmas, but the past couple weeks, you know, in December, it has been sultry. And I haven't known quite how to feel about that now that it's turned a little cold. You know, and when I say cold, I mean like in the 40s. I kind of miss the 70s. You know, I've been here, what, four or five months. My blood has already thinned. You know, I, it gets below 60. I got to put on my seersucker jacket, go stroll it out, protect it against the elements. Christmas is coming. Maybe my least favorite holiday of the calendar year. I find it stressful. I find it not particularly enjoyable in, uh, in theory or in execution. There's just too it's just too much. It's just too much. It it overwhelms me with mostly dread and guilt. The dread that I'm going to screw up somehow, the guilt that I have screwed up. You know, maybe I got somebody the wrong gift, the wrong thing. You know, it just shouldn't be like that. They're just the the, the idea of gift giving to me, ritualized gift giving, is just abhorrent. Somebody on Twitter was saying, you know, speaking as an adult about Christmas, it's one thing to give gifts to children who do not have jobs and have no money and cannot purchase their own items, quite another to give gifts to an adult uh, when most of the time you're not going to get them the thing that they want, you're going to screw it up. You know, you just get, and then everybody has to do the dance of, do you like it? I love it. Really? Oh, no, I really, I love it. It's really, it's perfect. It's exactly what I wanted because I saved the gift receipt. I just said, I love it. Didn't I just say, I love it. Okay. Well, if you don't for any reason, or if it doesn't fit or what have you, here's the gift receipt. Oh, fine. And then they go and return it because they didn't like it to begin with. That's what it always feels like when I'm buying gifts for people. It always feels like I've done them a disservice by purchasing them something, the obligation to purchase items for people in your life. Why? I don't know. I don't know why gift giving is such an important part of Christmas. It seems like there's no need to give gifts to celebrate somebody else's birthday. You want to buy a present for somebody? Buy it for Jesus. It's his birthday. It's not your birthday. Why, why do we do this? Why do we go through all this trouble and agita- but we do. And every year I dread it. And every year I get called names for my bah humbug attitude towards the holiday. Every year I feel badly about it. And then every year somehow we get through it. Generally speaking, Christmas morning is a pleasant occasion. Generally speaking, I I will admit to that. We generally have pleasant Christmas mornings here in the Black household. It always starts with um, some sort of breakfast, you know. Martha usually makes some sort of nice breakfast. And then we gather round the Christmas tree. I hate Christmas trees, by the way. We gather round the Christmas tree, we unwrap, we are together, we are, you know, dealing with our presents. In our own emotional ways. I love it. I just love it. Oh, it's perfect. It's just what I wanted. You know, we're all lying to each other. And uh, theres I guess there's something kind of nice about that. That you, you love the person enough to buy them a present. And you love the person who gave you the present enough to lie that you like the present. Maybe there's something in there that's positive. I don't know. I would much rather we just had the breakfast. And then maybe we... Uh, I don't know, watched a Christmas movie, you know, maybe went out caroling or something, and then that was Christmas. There was no gift-giving at all. You know, had a nice Christmas goose, and then that that was it. I've never had goose. I probably never will. But whenever I think of a Christmas meal, I will always think of goose, and I will always say a Christmas goose when illustrating what one eats on Christmas. Because goose is the funniest possible Christmas dish. It just is. The Christmas goose. But my Christmas gift to you, of course, is this season of Wuthering Heights, which we are just beginning. We're meeting all kinds of people. Last episode we met Mrs. Heathcliff. We we or Mrs. Heathcliff. I I I, I I'm not sure what she is, if she is his wife or his daughter. That hasn't become yet clear to me because he is of an advanced age. You know, he's a he's a grown ass man. Certainly, I mean, I'm, pic- I'm picturing him in his, I don't know, late 30s, 40s, something like that, early 40s, could be older, I don't know. And then Lockwood describes her as being just out of youth. So what is the nature of their relationship? It's unclear. How, if they are a couple, how did they come to be a couple? Also unclear. I understand these things happened in, uh, in jolly old America, because again, this is an American novel of previous centuries. You know, still happens today, less commonly. He has come to tea uninvited. She has basically said, what are you doing here? Leave me alone. And that is where we left it. Meanwhile, I'm picking up now Chapter 2, Weathering Heights. <laughs> Meanwhile, the young, the young man... Uh, And the young man described here is a servant, I believe, who first let him into the house. Meanwhile, the young man had slung onto his person a decidedly shabby upper garment and, erecting himself before the blaze, looked down on me from the corner of his eyes for all the world as if there were some mortal feud unavenged between us. I began to doubt whether he were a servant or not. His dress and speech were both rude— entirely devoid of the superiority observable in Mr. and Mrs. Heathcliff. Okay, so I guess she is Mrs. Heathcliff. Okay, fine. But, and again, like, I'm just, you know, I'm going off what little I know about Wuthering Heights, but I thought there was like a romance between Mr. Heathcliff and some gal, but maybe that's not what it is. I don't know. Entirely devoid of the superiority observable in Mr. and Mrs. Heathcliff. Maybe he's a kid from a previous marriage. His thick brown curls were rough and uncultivated, his whiskers encroached bearishly over his cheeks, and his hands were embrowned like those of the common laborer. Still, his bearing was free, almost haughty, and he showed none of a domestic's assiduity, 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 assiduity in attending on the lady of the house assiduity. I mean, that's a word that you see every now and again, every once in a blue moon. You forget all about it, and then you see it again, and you realize you've never pronounced it out loud. And then there you go, having to pronounce it. Assiduity. In the absence of clear proofs of his condition, I deemed it best to abstain from noticing his curious conduct. And five minutes afterwards, the entrance of Heathcliff relieved me in some measure from my uncomfortable state. I don't see how. Heathcliff is not going to be glad to see him. You're just you're just exchanging one discomfort for another. You see, sir, this is Lockwood saying, you see, sir, I am come according to promise, I exclaimed, assuming the cheerful, and I fear I shall be weatherbound for half an hour, if you can afford me shelter during that space. Half an hour, he said, shaking the white flakes from his clothes. I wonder you should select the thick of a snowstorm to ramble about in. Do you know that you run the risk of being lost in the marshes? People familiar with these moors often miss their road on such evenings, and I can tell you there is no chance of a change at present. Oh, so he's saying you're going to be stuck here tonight, kid. And I'm not happy about it. You know, we're we're kind of setting up a Rocky Horror Picture Show type thing here where, uh, you know, Janet and Brad get lost, you know, in the storm, and they end up at this scary house at the top of the hill with heaps of dead rabbits, and Frankenfurter, who's this kid, and not Frankenfurter, who's the, who's the, oh, gee, who's the Igor-type kid in that, not Frankenfurter, but, you know, the Igor-type. Frankenfurter we haven't quite found yet. It's not Heathcliff, certainly. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Um, So anyway, there's no chance of change at present, and you can't get lost in the moors because there's gators in them moors. You don't want to get you don't want to get up by them gators, do you? Nothing but gators out there. Take a wrong step, get your foot chopped off. Lockwood says perhaps I can get a guide among your lads, and he might stay at the Grange till morning. Could you spare me one? No, I could not. Oh, indeed. Well then, I must trust to my own sagacity. Humph! Are you going to make the tea? Demanded he of the shabby coat, shifting his ferocious gaze from me to the young lady. Is he to have any, she asked, appealing to Heathcliff. <laughs> she really doesn't want to give him any tea. I mean, that's the last thing we, in the last episode, she was like, you know, did you, did, did anybody invite you to tea? And he's like, well, I'd, I'd love a cup of tea. <laughs> he's like, I understand that. But did anybody ask you to tea? And he's like, not exactly. You would be the person to ask me, I guess, being the lady of the house. And you didn't ask me. So no, I just kind of showed up. Get it ready, will you, was the answer uttered so savagely that I started. Oh, I didn't really read it that savagely. Get it ready, will you. I can't really. Get it ready, will you. No? Get it ready, will you, was the answer uttered so savagely that I started. The tone in which the words were said revealed a genuine bad nature. I no longer felt inclined to call Heathcliff a Capital Fellow. No, nor I, Lockwood, nor I. You know, my thinking of Heathcliff is, you know, who's the kid that plays the, the guy in succession, the actor? Not Jeremy Strong, not the weirdo Jeremy Strong, but the other kid. Uh, I'm just going to call everybody kid now that I'm 50. Tom, what's his name? Great British actor. That's who I'm picturing as Heathcliff right now in my mind. McFadden. Tom, Mc, Tom McFadden? Uh, that's who I'm picturing in my mind is Heathcliff for some reason. I mean, you'd probably want to darken his hair a little bit, you know? Give him some bushier eyebrows or something, but but that's who I'm picturing. When the preparations were finished, he invited me with Now, sir, bring forward your chair and we all, including the rustic youth, drew round the table, an austere silence prevailing while we discussed our meal. Well, how is it silence if they're discussing their meal? Maybe there's a different use of the word discuss. I thought, if I had caused the cloud, it was my duty to make an effort to dispel it. They could not every day sit so grim and taciturn, and it was impossible, however ill-tempered they might be, that the universal scowl they wore was their every day countenance. It is strange, I began, in the interval of swallowing one cup of tea and receiving another. It is strange how custom can mold our tastes and ideas. "'Many could not imagine the existence of happiness "'in a life of such complete exile "'from the world as you spend, Mr. Heathcliff. "'Yet I'll venture to say "'that surrounded by your family "'and with your amiable lady "'as the presiding genius over your home and heart, "'my amiable lady,' he interrupted "'with an almost diabolical sneer on his face. "'Where is she? "'My amiable lady.' Mrs. Heathcliff, your wife, I mean. Well, yes. Oh, you would intimate that her spirit has taken the post of ministering angel and guards the fortunes of Wuthering Heights, even when her body is gone. Is that it? Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Here we go. Here we go. So uh, maybe I was right that, that, that there is a there is a dead wife here. So, yes, you would intimate that her spirit has taken the post of ministering angel and guards the fortunes of Wuthering Heights, even when her body is gone. Is that it? So the body of his amiable lady, Mrs. Heathcliff, his wife, we are to understand is dead. D-E-D, dead. So we don't know, again, quite who this other woman is. Perceiving myself in a blunder... I attempted to correct it. I might have seen that there was too great a disparity between the ages of the parties, thank you, to make it likely that they were man and wife. One was about 40, exactly as I said, a period of mental vigor at which men seldom cherish the delusion of being married for love by girls. That dream is reserved for the solace of our declining years. The other did not look 17. Okay, so... My confusion is the confusion of Lockwood. I am reading it exactly as it was meant to be read, in some confusion and befuddlement. I confess myself, befuddled. So, why don't we take just a moment here to sip our own cups of steaming tea, maybe enjoy a little cucumber sandwich, and we will return in a moment on Obscure. Back and Obscure, trying to clear up some familial confusion as to the nature of the relationship between Mr. Heathcliff and the young woman inhabiting his home, not to mention the young man also sharing his table, all of them scowling at each other over tea. Lockwood, in trying to inject a little lightness and levity into the proceedings, has put his foot in his mouth. So... Then it flashed upon me. I'm back to the book now. Then it flashed upon me. The clown at my elbow, who's drinking his tea out of a basin and eating his bread with unwashed hands, may be her husband. Heathcliff, Jr., of course. Here is the consequence of being buried alive. She has thrown herself away upon that bore from sheer ignorance that better individuals existed. A sad pity. I must beware how I cause her to regret her choice. Okay, so wait, what? The young guy, the man, is her husband. Okay, so the clown at my elbow, that dude, that's her husband, Heathcliff Jr.? Oh, so he's the son and he married her. Got it. She's not related to him. She's just a chick that the son brought home. Here is the consequence of being buried alive, meaning here's the consequence of living in, in, you know, Shropshire, upon three pence, which is, you know, I can't remember the name of the town and I'm not going to look it up. She has thrown herself away upon that bore from sheer ignorance that better individuals existed. She didn't know. She grew up there. She didn't know that anybody else was around. She's like, you know, I got to marry somebody. I got this dopey kid. His dad's rich. That's something. Yeah, I'll just marry him. The first one available. A sad pity I must beware how I cause her to regret her choice. So he's saying, oh, I, I, geez, I better not say anything that makes her think she married a dope, even though she obviously already knows it. Everybody's miserable there. They all hate each other. All right. So it seems like there will be a romance. Okay. He, Lockwood, and Mrs. Heathcliff, the junior. He's setting that up, that relationship up. Okay, and we'll see. All right. The last reflection may seem conceited. It was not. My neighbor struck me as bordering on repulsive. I knew through experience that I was tolerably attractive. Fine, fine. I, You know, you, you may think to yourself, ah, oh, gee, you know, what a, what a prick this kid is, this Lockwood kid, saying he's tolerably attractive. But then when I think about myself... I think, yeah, I'm tolerably attractive, you know? Like a good, Here's the thing that I've learned over the, over the many years of my existence to this point. Most people, the vast majority of people, are exactly that, tolerably attractive. Meaning, like, you're good-looking enough, you know? For whatever you want to do in this life, most people are good-looking enough. There's a few genetic freaks out there who are so striking in appearance that we stand in awe at their perfectly symmetrical symmetrical faces and their well-proportioned bodies. Fine. Those people, there will always be outliers. Most of us are never going to look like that. Um, and I suspect most of us ultimately don't even necessarily want to look like that, you know? That, because that carries a whole... A whole bunch of problems with it too. Most of us are tolerably attractive. We, if we present ourselves well and speak with vigor and enthusiasm and develop a sense of humor, a certain wit, some intelligence about the world, we can hold a conversation. We will, we will do just fine. You know, as tolerably attractive as we are. So I I will forgive Lockwood his own conceit that he is tolerably attractive. Mrs. Heathcliff is my daughter-in-law, said Heathcliff, corroborating my surmise. He turned as he spoke, a peculiar look in her direction, a look of hatred, unless he has a most perverse set of facial muscles that will not, like those of other people, interpret the language of his soul. Ah, certainly, I see now, you are the favored possessor of the beneficent fairy, I remarked, turning. To my neighbor. <laughs> so he's saying, he, he's saying Lockwood is turning to uh, the clown at his elbow, Heathcliff Jr., and saying, you are the possessor of the beneficent fairy. <laughs> just just a dumbass thing to say. And in fact, he goes on to say, this was worse than before. The youth grew crimson and clenched his fist with every appearance of a meditated assault, but he seemed to recollect himself presently, and smothered the storm in a brutal curse, muttered on my behalf, which, however, I took care not to notice. (laughs) Unhappy in your conjectures, sir, observed my host. We neither of us have the privilege of owning your good fairy. Her mate is dead. I said she was my daughter-in-law, therefore she must have married my son. And this young man is not my son, assuredly. Okay, so we're learning very quickly now that this is a confused family. Not a lot of it makes sense. The beneficent fairy is his daughter-in-law, but the kid, the clown at the elbow, is not his son. Okay, we don't know where his son is, but that's not him. All right. Heathcliff smiled again, as if it were rather too bold a jest to attribute the paternity of that bear to him. My name is Hareton Earnshaw, growled the other, and I'd counsel you to respect it. I've shown no disrespect, was my reply, laughing internally at the dignity with which he announced himself. Hareton Earnshaw. That's funny. I mean, it's a it's a very famous book, right? And yet I've never heard of the character Herton Earnshaw, that great American character in this great American book. He fixed his eye on me longer than I cared to return the stare for fear I might be tempted either to box his ears or render my hilarity audible. I began to feel unmistakably out of place in that pleasant family circle. So, I said it in the first episode. I'm going to say it again. The book is funny. This is a funny book. I don't know if it's going to stay funny, but through page 11 anyway, there's lots of jokes. That's the first thing that surprises me about Wuthering Heights. You'd think with a dreary name like Wuthering Heights that takes place in the Moors, there's not going to be a lot of jokes. And yet, this book is full of nothing but. Lockwood is a kind of comic character. Far more comic than uh, What's-His-Face from Frankenstein, Walton. Far more comic than anybody in Jude, save, uh, what's-his-face, the plum pudding fellow, who was, uh, you know, the teacher's friend. Uh, Our our narrator here is kind of funny and likable, I would say. He he certainly has his foibles. We learned about that already. He screwed up a potential marriage because he got all tongue-tied in front of the pretty girl. By the way, speaking of which, the wife and family and I just watched... Cyrano last night, the Peter Dinklage starring Cyrano. I don't know if this film has been released yet. We get it as a screener with music by the two uh, songwriters from The National. So it's, it's, a, it's a musical, kind of. Mostly, it's mostly, a, I mean, it's, there's not a ton of music in it, but it's a musical. And what's weird about it, and maybe not so weird when you think about it, is that every song sounds like a national song. And if you like The National, you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a, a, The National song. But when you transpose that to uh, the 18th century in France, it doesn't work so well. It's weird. It's a weird movie. Um, I can't say I disliked it. I didn't. Nor can I say I liked it. I didn't. But there's things about it that I liked. Uh, so I guess I'm not recommending it, but I'm, nor am I not recommending it. I'm saying just watch it. If that's, the, if that's not the most namby-pamby review of anything you've ever heard, I, I would be surprised. Incredibly namby-pamby on my part. Uh, so his, my name is Herton Earnshaw, right? He fixed his eye on me, right? I began to feel unmistakably out of place in that pleasant family circle the dismal spiritual atmosphere overcame and more than neutralized the glowing physical comforts around me. And I resolved to be cautious how I ventured under those rafters a third time. Um, you, you know, maybe just don't go back, you know? Maybe just hang out at the Grange, you know? Do a jigsaw puzzle, play some boggle, probably no reason to go back to Wuthering Heights. The business of eating being concluded and no one uttering a word of sociable conversation, I approached a window to examine the weather. A sorrowful sight I saw, a dark night coming down prematurely, and sky and hills mingled in one bitter whirl of wind and suffocating snow. I don't think it possible for me to get home now without a guide. I could not help exclaiming, The roads would be buried already, and if they were bare, I could scarcely distinguish a foot in advance. Hareton drive those dozen sheep into the barn porch. "'They'll be covered if left in the fold all night "'and put a plank before them,' said Heathcliff. "'How must I do?' "'Wait, how must I do?' "'Ah, how must I do?' "'I continued, with rising irritation. "'There was no reply to my question.' I meaning he's like, what, "'What the hell am I supposed to do now?' "'I continued. "'There was no reply to my question, "'and on looking round, "'I saw only Joseph bringing in a pail of porridge "'for the dogs,' And Mrs. Heathcliff, leaning over the fire, diverting herself with burning a bundle of matches which had fallen from the chimney piece, as she restored the tea canister to its place. The former, when he had deposited his burden, took a critical survey of the room and, in cracked tones, graded out. Oh, and here we're gonna. Here we got his weird accent again. <sighs> I, I mean, I better open the footnotes before I even try to translate it, because it's. Nearly impossible to understand what the hell Joseph is saying from one moment to the next. But, and the footnotes are all difficult to find. All right, here we go. Here we go, Joseph. All right, let's give it a crack. <laughs> I wonder how you can fashion to stand there, your idleness and war, when all of them's gone, I But you are a noot, and that's no use talking. You'll never mend all your little ways. Bud, go right to devil like your mother for ye. Okay, so, I wonder how you can fashion to stand there in idleness, in war, when all of them's gone. I... I (laughs) uh, I don't know. Bud, you're a note, and it's no use talking. You're you're, you're a note, and it's no use talking. You'll never mind, you'll never mend your ill ways, Go right to the devil like your mother before you. So Joseph is obviously not a fan of Hareton either. So let's hear, uh, here's the translation. I wonder how you can let yourself stand there in idleness and worse when all of them have gone out. But you're nothing, and it's no use talking. You'll never mend your evil ways, but it will go right to the devil like your mother before you. All right. And we don't really know what he's talking about, but all right. He's got a dead mom. Uh, I imagined for a moment that this piece of eloquence was addressed to me, and sufficiently enraged stepped towards the aged rascal with an intention of kicking him out of the door. Mrs. Heathcliff, however, checked me by her answer. "'You scandalous old hypocrite,' she replied. "'Are you not afraid of being carried away bodily "'whenever you mention the devil's name? "'I warn you to refrain from provoking me, "'or I'll ask your abduction as a special favor.' Stop, look here, Joseph, she continued, taking a long, dark book from a shelf. I'll show you how far I've progressed in the black heart. What? I shall soon be competent to make a clear house of it. The red cow didn't die by chance, and your rheumatism can hardly be reckoned among providential visitation. Oh, wicked, wicked, gasped the elder. May the Lord deliver us from evil. No, reprobrate. You are a castaway. Be off, or I'll hurt you seriously. I'll have you all modelled in wax and clay, and the first who passes the limits I fix shall. I'll not say what he shall be done to, but you'll see. Go, I'm looking at you. <laughs> so, what? The little witch put a mock malignity into her beautiful eyes, and Joseph, trembling with sincere horror, hurried out, praying and ejaculating wicked as he went. I thought her conduct must be prompted by a species of dreary fun, and now that we were alone, I endeavored to interest her in my distress. Okay, so (laughs) let's just review this for a second. Uh, Mrs. Heathcliff has threatened to put a curse on him. She says she is advanced in the black arts. She'll make a model of him out of wax and clay, and I assume which I assume would be like a voodoo doll, and inflict all kinds of terrible punishments on him, including rheumatism, which he already suffers from. And she seems to be saying that she did that, and she seems to be saying that the red cow died because of her as well. This is not the book I was expecting. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, I was not expecting any witches. I was not expecting any black arts at all. And yet I am delighted to have found them. Um, So I guess we'll stop there, you know, with the black arts. Every page brings a new discovery. We are learning who these people are. I am surprised at who they are. Each one of them seems to be a conundrum for Lockwood to puzzle through. Look. I hope she wasn't being metaphorical. I hope she really is a witch. I hope she really does cast spells. I hope she really does create a voodoo doll. And I hope somebody dies. But I'm always looking for murder and mayhem in these classic books. This book is no different. I will be uh, disappointed if no murder or mayhem occurs. On the other hand, the book seems to be lighter in tone than some of the others we have read. And so maybe there's just a bit of comic mischief that will unfurl. I have no idea. Maybe this is a rom-com of some sort, you know? Can we not almost picture a young, a young Julia Roberts as Mrs. Heathcliff, or a young—I uh, don't—I don't even know who the actresses are today. I don't know who would be a good Mrs. Heathcliff. But I'll let you think about that. Maybe you can put your comments in the on the page, the Patreon page, if you are a Patreon member. If not, then you can type it to each other on whatever message boards you all congregate on. I suspect there are no message boards you congregate on because very few of you listen to this podcast. It is, by design, obscure. So we'll conclude there. Um. Yeah, we'll pick it up next time on another hair-raising episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks.